I ha I've had conversations where people are making assumptions about her, and I'm like, none of that is actually on the page. Like, you don't know anything about her, like, job aspirations or, like, who she is as a person. You have just guessed, and that's fine, but, like, know the difference between what you filled in and, and what I put down. Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Now, I always feel like we either live in a world now of the really long novel or the quick, bite-sized, funny online video. Rarely now does the short story succeed on breaking through. That was until December 2017 when, I think for the first time I can remember in my lifetime, a literary short story went viral. Kristen Rupenian wrote Cat Person for The New Yorker and it turned into one of their most read bits of fiction on their site of all time. It had 2.6 million reads. So when I learned that Vintage would be publishing her whole short story collection in January 2019, you can imagine my feelings. I for one, as I know, a lot of Kristen Rupenian fans are really excited for this new collection and you know you want this. Especially because her short story Cat Person was this really biting, concise, honest, uh, and, and very unusual look at the brief and failed relationship between a 20-year-old student called Margot and an older man, Robert. I think I was waiting, and from the looks of it, a lot of other women my age, for a story that really tackled the modern-day deceptions of dating and the really topical treatment of non-consensual sex in our society. When Kristen visited us in the UK, we could think of no better person than Dolly Alderton to interview her. Dolly Alderton is, of course, a journalist, author and prolific podcaster on the podcast The Hilo. Earlier this year, Dolly and Kristen absolutely packed a venue to the sides. There was not a spare seat in the house as they chatted about feminism, the complexities of fiction and biography and what it means to be honest and write about sex as a woman in 2018. Thank you so much for that. Um, I'm going to be Mr Fitzherbert from Bridget Jones and uh, do an introduction to Kristen that I know will embarrass her. Kristen Rupenian needs no introduction in this room, but... I am going to give you one. Her short story, Cat Person, published last December, has become the most read piece of fiction on the New Yorker website of all time and currently has over two and a half million reads and landed her a two-book deal that will be translated into 11 territories thus far. It's a story that began at Thousand Stories and started conversations I know I certainly have never had before, but the thoughts and feelings have been brewing since I was a late adolescent. The story covered themes of consent, romance, the distorted male and female roles, sex, pornography, power and fantasy, which is quite an extraordinary thing for one short story of 7,000 words, and I'm not jealous at all. <laughs> it was one of the most important pieces of fiction I've ever read, and the way it cracked conversations wide open makes me know that there are millions who would agree. It's her first ever visit to London, which is why I think it's even more pressing we give her another enormous round of applause. Kristen So tell me, how did this short story, how did it come to be published? Sure. Um, so 
A year ago, I was just finishing up an MFA, uh, my creative writing degree, and I'd had like a handful of things published online, and uh, an agent, uh, her name's Jenny, reached out to me and asked me if I had a novel in progress. And I had recently um, completely abandoned a novel I'd been working on for over a year. I was sad about it and kind of at sea, but I had just written a story called Cat Person that no one else had read. And I said, hey, you know, I have this story. I'm not really sure if it's any good, but you can see it and send it out. And she took it, which was amazing, um, and sent it to a bunch of different magazines. They all rejected it very and, kindly. And Kristen won't tell me what they were because she's classy. <laughs> yeah, and, and they rejected it very nicely. I mean, they said nice things, but they all said no. And then months went by. And the only place I hadn't heard from was The New Yorker, and I assumed they just rejected it and not bothered to even tell me. And then, sort of maybe four or five months after we'd sent it, I got an email from Deborah Treisman, the editor of The New Yorker, and it was like two lines. It was like, sorry we've taken so long on this, like, it's very intriguing, more soon. And I like screamed, and I was like, oh my god, and I sent it to my mom, and I was like, listen, they're not going to take it, it's stupid to even think that they would take it, but can you imagine, like, Deborah Treisman at the New Yorker knows my name, and so, uh, I still remember how excited I was, it was easily, writing-wise, the most exciting thing that had happened to me in my life, and then maybe, I, at that point, I also, like, in the interim, I met Jenny in person. I hadn't met her before, and I showed her my collection, and she was like, yeah, you know, we can take it out, but like, collections are really hard to sell, and then she's sort of like, of course, if the story gets into The New Yorker, that'll be a different story. And we sort of like <laughs> laughed with each other at the <laughs> possibility of that happening, and then they took it, and so then my life started changing very, very quickly. Um, yeah. Um, moving on to interpretations, so I just have to warn you, Kristen is like, so cool about in the interpretations of Cat Person. I think I get more annoyed than she does about <laughs> all the different takes in it. But it seems like truly I've interrogated you about this so much and you seem truly so fine with the myriad takes that people have had because so many people have, have, have put their story onto Cat Person or have appropriated it as their own um, or found a way into it um, that's maybe unusual. And it seems to me that you're kind of okay with all of that. You said at one point that you feel like the conversation almost has got so much bigger than you and the story. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. I think my, like, calm is a little bit hard-earned, and it's nice we're having this conversation, you know, several months after it first happened. But, I mean, I told you before, before I was a creative writer, I was in grad school studying literature, and my whole job was to, like, read something that someone else had written, and then sort of Make, put my own take on it and think about what it meant and kind of pick it apart and say this part this part is strong, this part is problematic this part, you know, and I understood that as like a creative act like that was how I read the books I loved was to have these like strong opinions about them that if the actual writer had read them, like probably would have wildly offended them and you know gotten under their skin and so now it's this great I just, I don't know, I just believe it you know, that like, you write something, you give it to the world, and then the world does what it wants with it, and you can't, to, to try and control that is to like, really interrupt the mm -hmm. thing that matters the most to me about writing, which is like, giving a piece of yourself to other people and letting them like, collaborate with you on deciding what it means, so. An interesting take, um, 
I sound a bit infuriating, <laughs> was um, the BBC did yeah. a uh, repost uh-huh. um, on behalf of Paul Robert. Uh-huh. Um, they wrote a fictional repost of his side of the story, um, which I do understand why they did that. And I think there was also um, a Twitter account that was a very funny collation of, of men's sort of outrage and indignance. Um, who, who had read Cat Person called Men React Cat Person. It's very, very funny. Um, but I wanted to know whether, do you feel, is it galling to you that they felt like they hadn't been heard? Those, not all men, obviously, mm. not all men, um, <laughs> but those men who, who reacted in that way, that they felt like they hadn't been heard? Or did you feel sort of sympathy for that? Did you understand where they were coming from? neither I mean I think I read that I thought it was a little silly I, the way I tried to tell myself it I was like oh you're writing fan fiction like congratulations <laughs> I've written a lot of fan fiction in my time so good good on you <laughs> um, and uh, I think that one I, I don't know I, I think this is like my, my worst burn. Like I'll be like, I don't think it's that interesting. Like <laughs> it doesn't have that much new to say. And that doesn't mean at all that I don't think there isn't a ton of space for men to write, like to write the internal monologue of a man in a relationship or even for a woman to write the internal dialogue of a man. I think that's, that's fine. But I think you have to be interesting about it. I would say the way that I a moment, there was a moment when I was writing the story, and I say, like, over and over, it's not autobiographical, it's not autobiographical, and it's not, but, like, there was a moment where I was writing, and I was like, this is so weird and kind of creepy, and maybe I'm the only person in the world that felt this way, and I don't know, but I'll just put it out there, and hopefully no one will read it, you know, and you have that moment, and you put it out, and then people respond, and so I think when you show up to a story, and you're like, I'm gonna tell everyone exactly how it is, you're not writing from the kind of like vulnerable, weird, kind of isolated place that people tend to respond to, you know, like, and that's what those stories were, like, male perspective, like, mm. with Catherine's like, nobody cares, like, that's not worth <laughs> Something in the story that I think a lot of women I know found quite difficult to confront is quite how much Margot allocates herself as being the manager um, and the sort of placator of Robert's sexual ego she kind of tames and she soothes him like he's a nervous skittish wild beast is this something that you feel is kind of deeply entrenched in our culture yeah i mean it seems to me like just knowing myself and my friends and other sort of women i was thinking like a particular kind of woman i'm sure everybody does i'm sure it's not only women and i'm sure it's not all women but i do think there's a particular kind of woman of which I count myself, for whom, like, knowing people and understanding them is kind of a signature strength and a thing that you sort of compliment yourself on and feel, like, for me, I'm, like, shy and I'm nervous and I screw up things a lot, but I do feel like if you're sitting across the table from me, I can put you at ease. And that's a thing that I sort of, like, in my self-definition, like, really for a long time, it's like, that's the thing I'm good at. The thing I'm good at is making you feel okay in yourself. And... It was not until I was a little older that I started to see that not as just a pure good, but as both like exhausting and kind of draining and not necessarily like a good feeling at the end of it, but also like kind of an illusion. Like to think that I was the one in control of all those conversations that were going so well, that like I was the one who knew if like you know the boss was angry to go in and like smile and like cheer him up and do all that. It's like 
maybe I was in control or maybe he was doing exactly what he wanted to do at every step and I was just kind of doing this like to tell myself that I was the one kind of running the show when I never was and I, I think that yeah that sense of like being good with people mm. can give you an illusion of power and control and understanding of people that can actually like really lead you astray if you put too much reliance on it. Because like, yeah, most people are going to do what they want and they, you don't know what they're thinking. <laughs> well, speaking of that, I am going to make you tell a story that you told me oh, a couple right. of days ago because I think that, that, that obligation of empathy, right. I think, casts a very long shadow. Yeah. And you've told me about an yes. incident that happened recently. Um, yes. So... Um, this incident that happened, which was gross and terrible, so just prepare yourself, but, um, was I was driving to meet my friend, and I stopped by the side of the road, and I was like, looking at my phone for directions, and a guy kind of pulled up and was like, oh, do you need help? And I was like, no, thank you, I'm fine. And then he sort of stayed there and was like, um, are you from around here? Do you know where you're going? And I was like, oh, well, actually, no, do you know where this street is and he's like yeah it's up there and I'm like thinking this is like a lovely interaction and then he said something that I didn't quite hear but I got that he was I was like oh he's hitting on me so I sort of smiled and it was really like, oh no thank you and then it turned out I had misheard him and he was trying to show me his dick and he was like unbuckling his pants and I was just like no 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 get away like I just shouted no which I was like sort of proud of myself in the end and circled around the car and he drove away but which is, you know, bad. But afterwards, like, one of the things that I noticed my brain was doing was just kind of, like, try, thinking and trying to empathize. Like, I just spent the next 24 hours, my brain just wanted to go on this path where it was like, what was he thinking? What kind of a person would do that? What was his motivation when he was doing like, like, I just needed, some part of me needed to, un like, to understand it. And I think that impulse to understand was an impulse to control, right? Like, if I knew why it had happened, then I could avoid being in that situation again. And I think I'm old enough and that it happened fast enough that I, like, I didn't do anything. I just had enough distance to see that that was what my brain needed to do to kind of process mm. that. But I think that impulse to empathy is this sometimes a self-protective kind of control instinct. It's like, oh, I understand you, so I know what you're going to do, so I can predict it, so I can, like, be safe. And seeing all the stages of that can be really hard because it often happens just like that. It happens really fast. And then you're like, wait, why was I nice to that person who just was awful to me? But that's, I think, sometimes the reason. Yeah, and it's, um, you know that... He's not sitting at home thinking about... No, it's like, well, how is that girl feeling? How did that interaction, like, leave her? Like, he just doesn't know. He's just baffled. No, yeah, no, he's, it's weird. It's weird. And then it passed. And then I didn't care. Like, I didn't want to think about it at all. It was just, like, something that had to play out. As I've mentioned, I think an important part of the story is that it, it's not moralized in a kind of clear-cut way. Um, I think you kind of present a situation as dynamic and by proxy a culture that has led these two people into this mess where there's kind of no real goodie or real baddie. Was that something that you were really conscious of doing? I mean, yeah. I, I think that mo when you're writing fiction, I was thinking about this this morning actually, it's like you the best stuff comes from a place where you're not quite sure yourself, right? Like where you're sort of straining for an answer 
but you don't know the answer. And if you come at it from a place where you're like, I know the moral of the story, and I know who's right, and I know who's wrong, like, no matter how right you are, like, that's not going to be interesting to read, because what's cool about reading and about fiction is like again it's a collaborative thing right like if you're straining genuinely to figure something out I feel like usually the people who are read it reading it pick up on that and then work with you to kind of finish it and like take it home and if you come to it instead with being like here's a lesson I have to teach you they're passive they're just sitting there listening to you tell them something and they're going to drop out you need to genuinely be like I don't understand I think the best things that I write come from a place where I'm like, I genuinely don't understand this. I need to figure it out. My brain needs to work on it. And you get sort of as far as you can, and then you give it to readers, and they finish that and sort of close the door. Um, if we could then take a few questions from the audience. No, um, I agree. Like, I think about it in terms of when I hear other people talk about Marta and Robert, how vivid sometimes their impression of those characters are, and I realize I also have a very vivid but totally different impression because I didn't fill in a lot of those gaps. And I, I think um, on purpose, yeah, I mean, I have a vision specifically of Margot that is very particular and sort of like was inspired. I have, often when I'm writing, I have to sort of like pluck people from my life and just kind of use them and then I change them as I need to. And then every once in a while, like by the end, it's so different, I hope, that no one would ever recognize themselves, but I do have this fear and so I'm being like, oh, I don't outfit like that, am I? You know, but it, they're not. Um, and so I think, I do think that it works best when you leave some space for readers to fill in, for sure. And I think also one thing that someone said to me that I thought was interesting, maybe true, was the fact that nobody had heard of me before the story went viral actually helped people just kind of fill in a lot. So I think I think a lot of, like I ha I've had conversations where people are making assumptions about her and I'm like, none of that is actually on the page. Like you don't know anything about her like job aspirations or like who she is as a person. You have just guessed and that's fine, but like know the difference between what you filled in and, and what I put down. They must, right? I mean, we could get a, get a man up here and ask him, but my sense is, having heard them talk, that they do. Um, I think men, God, I feel so strange always, like, being the spokesperson for telling people how men and women are, but I also am very happy to do it. I love that. <laughs> That's why Exactly. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that men do, and certainly even, like, in the story, the kind of surprise at the end is how much he has been doing it, right? Filling in the gaps of her as much as she has been filling in the gaps of him, which I think is, is true and right. What I, what I sort of feel like, maybe, and I'm just improvising in my sweeping summary of the genders, is that like women tend to like 
Like, I think a lot of times men will have this idea, they'll be like, oh, a hot co-ed, right? Like, a hot college student, I'm gonna, you know, date her, and I know who she is, and that's the thing they've imagined. And women, I sort of think of them, like, that their, their fantastic visions tend to, like, evolve and change and kind of be more, like, like active, and that they, they will continue to kind of, like, revise and revise and revise that vision to sort of keep a relationship going in a way that I don't see men do as much. Like, this, when I hear my friends talking about, like, the men that they're dating, the sort of, like, intense effort to, like, humanize and, like, make interest, like, make understood and, like, to how, how hard women will work to tell a story about a man that makes him seem sympathetic and interesting and good does seem not paralleled <laughs> with the stories that men tell about women, um, if, that, if that makes sense. So yeah, I, I think there are differences. But I don't think there's any human being on the planet who can say, no, I see people purely for who they are, and I never to like fill in the blanks of their story with my thought. I do think that's a human impulse. Yeah, any other ones? Lady with the glasses. But yeah, so which it was very immersive. I assume you've all read it. You should if you haven't. Um, but also it was like maybe a little too close to my own actual anxieties to do the full like soothing work. Um, um, yeah, what, what is the last one that I've read that did that for me? You know what I'm reading right now? So the, my instinct was to say Stephen King because Stephen King is what did it for me when I was like a kid. When I was 11, 12, 13, it was like I would read The Stand and everyone in the world was dead and I'd be like, yes, that and that matches my emotional tenor right now. <laughs> the only satisfying book in the world. Um, and that kind of heightened, like horror is, is often what does it. Um, but lately, sometimes just reading really dark, kind of like, I don't know if you guys know the American writer Atessa Mossbeg, um, who just had a collection out. Her characters are so sort of like dark and twisted and kind of like miserable that somehow that make it like easier for me to live in the world. I'm just like, God, we're all so disgusting. <laughs> and then I'm just like a little bit like more able to go about my day. Any more? I'm happy to answer more if you guys are, if you have them. There we go, one more. It's cool. always one more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, honestly, in some ways, I feel like this question should bounce to Dolly, who has had the conversation, you know, you've had the conversations without getting angry. I tend to shut them down because I wrote the story, so I'm just like, it's all right there, everything I have to say, please, like, you know, <laughs> here you go, just carry a copy of the book around and just hand it out whenever people ask you questions. No, but I mean, I don't know, I think... Like, if I think back, and I hope this answers your question, I don't know. If I think back to, 
the conversation I had like with my brother-in-law who was just sort of like coming at the story from this different angle and we weren't going to meet and like there was going to be this space I do think like in the same way that I am like people are going to interpret my story and I can't control it and I can't own it and if I had tried to write it from a position of telling people that I knew what was right and they were wrong the story wouldn't have landed with them and I think there's a sort of double vision you have to have where you're like I know I'm right, but I might be wrong, you know, <laughs> simultaneously is like, takes a kind of like, takes practice. But I think with, if people are reading the story, right, and they're thinking about it, and they are like wrestling with it, like they will come to a wide range of conclusions. And some of them we might think are stupid, and some of them we might think are great, but like that's better than before when they weren't thinking about it at all. Because it is that process of kind of dragging it out into the light and just, making people, helping people see the thing that was sort of in the side of their vision but not quite visible before. So I think just letting go of, I know this sense of like your own responsibility to like tell people like, you've got to understand. It's like, it's not your job to make them understand and it's a lot of work to feel like you have to help other people be less wrong because people are so wrong all the time and if you took it on yourself, you would collapse in exhaustion, which honestly I think a lot of us do. So I think, yeah, it's it's there's only so much you can do and there's only so much that is your responsibility, which hopefully is a little bit relieving. Yeah. Uh, Kristen, I'm just going to embarrass you one more time. I think Cat Person is one of the most important pieces of writing I've ever, ever read. And I think I speak on behalf of everyone when it helped me kind of really understand myself and understand this culture that I've grown up in. So please, please join me Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. Weren't they brilliant? Do check out the short story Cat Person if you haven't already. And of course, all of Dolly Alderson's amazing work. And do watch out for the short story collection, You Know You Want This, which is coming out in January of 2019. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other vintage episodes, don't forget to share them with a friend and do leave us a review on iTunes if you fancy. Thank you so much for listening and until next time. Mm -hmm.